welcome to episode 39 of the Tech Done Right podcast, table size podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. This is an episode I've been wanting to do for a long time. In this episode, we're going to talk about technical conferences with some of the best conference organizers I know. We're going to talk with Marty Hot, who's helped organize Ruby Central's conferences for many years. Jim Remsick and Jen Remsick have organized Madison Ruby and the whole family of Madison conferences. And Leah Silber has organized for Ruby Central and also organizes EmberConf and RustConf. Before we start the show, a couple of quick messages. TableXI is now offering training for developer and product teams. Topics include testing, improving legacy JavaScript, career development, and agile team processes. For more information, hit our website at tablexi.com slash workshops, uh, which is brand new live as I record this. We also have a free email course and tools on improving your company's career growth and goal strategy. You can find that at stickynote.game. And now, here's my conversation with Jen, Jim, Leah, and Marty. Uh, this is, I think, the largest group we've ever done for um, something that wasn't a live panel on this show. And so let me have everybody introduce themselves. I have Jim and Jen Remsick. Yeah, I'm Jim Remsick with Adorable. I am Jen Remsick with Adorable. That's adorable. Sorry. No worries. And together we've been putting together uh, Madison Plus Ruby for the last eight years or so. Took a year off there. And then uh, we also put together Snow Mobile and Madison Plus UX. About 13 conferences over uh, eight years. And I have Leah Silber. Hi, everybody. Uh, I have been working on events in tech since somewhere around 2006, I think, which makes me officially incredibly old. I'm the CEO of a company called Tilda. We build Skylight, which helps uh, with performance of Rails applications. And these days, my big conferences are the annual EmberConf and RustConf. I been doing RailsConf for the past 10 or so years. I did jQuery conferences for a number of years since the very beginning of jQuery until some point in the middle there. I don't keep track anymore of how many because there's too many, but it brings me a lot of joy to help bring people together and give communities that face-to-face opportunity to grow and get to know each other. And I also have Marty Hot. Hello, uh, Marty Hot. Uh, I run a small consultancy called the Hot Codeworks. Uh, and uh, for organizing, I am a director of Ruby Central, one of three. And we run the RailsConf and RubyConf conferences. And I've been doing conferences since 2007. So it's been 11 years for me. And I started with Mountain West RubyConf, then moved to Rocky Mountain Ruby, which I ran my, by myself, which is not recommended, but then moved on to being a director of Ruby Central. And I will be the program chair for ReConf in LA in November. So that is a lot of experience in running technical conferences. So it's always seemed to me to be a kind of a, a thankless job, or at least a job where you can get blamed for a lot of things. What's something that people don't notice often that you really like to get right that you think is important to the success of a conference? Um, I remember when Jim first approached me about planning our first Ruby conference, and he's like, there are three things I want us to make sure we get right. The food, the Wi-Fi, and the programming. And I'm like, okay, I can take, I know how to handle making sure we have Wi-Fi and food. I need you to do the programming since I don't know programming at all. <laughs> and that's kind of how we divided up the task for planning our conferences. And we keep those three things in mind at all the time. I think... 
the whole experience is really just uh, an exercise in empathy. And at every step of the planning, you need to think about what your attendee is going to be experiencing in that moment and how you can make that most efficient, most enjoyable, and most likely to be successful. And I think the difference between the conferences where you really feel like everything was together and the conferences where you feel like a whole bunch of people got sort of haphazardly thrown in a room together is how much of that the organizer does, right? Like, did they stand in line at the restroom and think about like where that queues up? Did they think about like when people are walking out of this room and people are walking out of that room, like, are they going to walk right into each other and cause a traffic jam? Is there enough signage? It's really just like a collection of all of the little things on the logistics front and then a similar collection on the like people front, uh, which is to say, make sure that you have an environment that makes everybody comfortable. Make sure that you have an environment where all different kinds of people are represented. Make sure that the people that you're putting on stage are a good representation of everyone who's going to be there. So everyone in the audience can be like, oh, I'm welcome here. People like me can be successful here. And a combination of all the little things on the side of the people and all the little things on the side of the logistics really come together to form a very solid put together experience where people feel like uh, curated at every step along the way. And so I think it's just a matter of like, how much bandwidth can you devote to every tiny little thing? And really every time that you do another conference, the volume of things that you're going to be doing and the volume of things that you're going to be focusing on is going to grow and grow and grow. Because a lot of the things you have to really experience in order to understand how to handle them well and in order to iterate on like the creative solutions that make people feel better and have a a better time. Uh, So like right now, when I think back on my first conferences, I, I don't want to say I'm embarrassed, but I've come a very, very long way. And a lot of that was stuff that I just sort of had to figure out for myself along the way. I can kind of riff on that because that's kind of where I was going to follow up with Leah because Leah provided a very, very great answer that way. the Certainly with Mountain West in the beginning, it was the first regional Ruby conference that came out and we just didn't do quite as much. The bar was fairly low. We focused on certain things that were really important. And there's a lot of things that, especially with a brand new conference, if you're brand new to that, you know, you just don't know yet. And certainly when I started Rocky Mountain Ruby, I had other things that I wanted to do that we didn't have time or didn't dedicate energy to at Mountain West. And I went into that. And certainly when I think about what we do at RailsConf and RubyConf, there's a lot more. But as we've gone along, we've, you know, we nailed this or we got that down. And now we can say, oh, great. Now let's tackle childcare or let's tackle diversification or, you know, uh, scholars and guides and and sort of these nice add-ons once we felt like we got the basics down. For sure, by the way, the barrier to entry for new conferences and new organizers is higher because of how much iterating everybody else has done. So like when I first started getting into events, you were like considered a successful and inclusive event where people would be like, wow, you care a lot if you bothered at all to like have vegetarian food, you know? And now fast forward 10 or 15 years and on the food front, it's like, vegetarian, vegan, kosher, halal, all the possible dietary things. And then like that base has expanded into considering all the needs of all the people on every level. So like childcare, which Marty mentioned, is not something I would have 
even thought of, like it wasn't even on the radar 15 years ago. Uh, something like closed captioning or live sign language, or just like right now that every time I build a website for an event, there's of course a section that talks about accessibility and how do you get in if you have a wheelchair and what do you do if you need this and where are the all gender restrooms, like all of these things. Admittedly, they can be a little bit intimidating for a new conference organizer. So that's what I meant when I said that the bar is a little higher. There are a lot more things that people expect, but it also means that events that are put on by today's standards are really ticking off a lot more boxes and really making a lot more people happy and and able to attend at all. Childcare, closed captioning, things like that are all things where for a lot of people, if you don't have them, you simply cannot attend. And then there's the smaller things that like in theory, people could attend. Like Marty mentioned the Guides and Scholars program. A lot of the events that we're all going to talk about today probably have some version of like a program that basically makes it so new conference attendees uh, aren't so intimidated by what's going on, whether that's pairing them up with a mentor or if you call it a guide or a scholar or whether it's having a reception where they can meet people. There are people out there who would look at a conference and say, I'm new to the industry or I'm young and new to professional environments altogether or I... And some other version of new to this scene, and I'm too intimidated to attend. And now you have all these programs that are like, okay, now that group we're tackling. Here's a way to help ease your on-ramp so that you have a, a better experience. And so I think conferences in our corner of the tech world are just much more inviting right now. And like inclusive, and, and inclusive is a word that people like to use because it's a buzzword. But on the planning side of things, it's a very tactical list of objectives that you have to figure out how to deal with and like how do we make sure that this type of person is comfortable and how do we make sure that this type of person is comfortable and how do we make sure that these type of people are represented etc cetera, etc cetera. and we just do so much more of that these days that i think it's a large part of the workload of running a conference and i think it pays off it's absolutely worth it and every time that you iterate you wind up both making a better conference, but you also signal for the future, this is what you should expect from conferences, uh, either from this conference or other conferences that we run. And so you wind up building up you know, expectation for yourself as well as, as Leah said, other conferences around you. Yeah, I'm not, not empathetic, by the way, to like new conference organizers who see these more established events or more experienced organizers and think to themselves like, ooh, now I, like, I don't know if I can do that. On the one hand, I want to encourage those people on the other hand, it's really important that the art of planning a conference itself is now able to be seen as a distinct set of skills versus beforehand where it was just like, oh, I'm a Ruby developer and I like Ruby, so obviously I could run a Ruby conference, right? It was nice and those days were really helpful to bootstrap a lot of things. But now that we're further ahead, it's also nice that it's recognized that this is like an entire set of skills and logistical expertise and that makes room for people who maybe aren't Ruby developers to have a place in our community, for example. But it also just encourages getting better and building it up as a skill like you would any other. How hard is it to deal with the budgetary aspect? I think that's the aspect that I probably know the least about in terms of putting on a conference. Like, Is it something where you feel like you're constantly scrambling against a limit? Like, Is it How hard is that part that the, the, or the attendees really, really don't see? I would for sure say that that is a perfectly timed question with the last one because the earlier you on you are in terms of your experience doing this, the more stressful it can be. And the 
further ahead you are, the less stressful it is. First of all, because you get a chance to build up a store of funds, assuming that you're able to turn some kind of profit, even if it's a small profit every year, you put it away in the bank and then you have a little bit to like pay your venue deposit next year and bootstrap like any other bootstrapping thing. But also the more experience you have and the more history your event has, the more you know that people are going to show up and the less the risk is. So it becomes less stressful. You also get better because you have your vendors lined up. And ideally, you have venues that you've worked with before. Everything that you can push repeat on instead of starting anew makes your life easier as an organizer, but it also makes your life uh, safer as the financial backer of an event like this, because things are more predictable, you're less likely to have a vendor like duck out at the last minute or not deliver the product that you purchased from them. So it gets easier. It's also very much about organization. It's not like a haphazard collection of receipts sitting in a drawer, certainly not if you want to do it well and not have it be at tremendous financial risk. Like there's a lot of I think exciting, but still exciting spreadsheets and calculations involved in behind the scenes of a conference. Um, and also a lot of reasoning off spreadsheet about the money, for example, like, well, my prices have gone up X, Y, Z, but like, can I actually raise the cost of the ticket? How are people going to perceive this? How is this going to make things more or less accessible to newer developers or people who can't afford a really expensive ticket or people whose employers won't pay for them? I personally enjoy that side of things. And there should be someone on every conference team who does enjoy it because otherwise it can suck the fun out of it for the people who are in it for the other sides of it, whether that's program planning or logistical work or, or all that kind of stuff. I'll kind of add a little bit to that. Certainly, it's a very different experience from, say, Rocky Mountain Ruby to RubyConf or RailsConf. It's an order of magnitude there, really. And certainly, early on with Rocky Mountain Ruby, I was very, very cautious. I just tried to make sure I kept my costs down uh, because there's a lot more unpredictability about, you know, how many sponsors would come on board and and would we actually sell. Um, enough tickets to not lose money. And so it, it was pretty nerve wracking in uh, the beginning. We luckily there was enough success and drive and interest that we never ran any problems. But um, certainly it was uh, something that I kept in mind for RailsConf and RubyConf. They're well oiled machine. We know uh, roughly what to expect from in terms of uh, ticket sales, what to expect from sponsors. The sponsors can vary. And, you know, you have to be ready and, and have that budget so that in case you don't get the sponsors you expect, or if somehow there's a drop off in ticket sales, that you're still going to be okay. And you're going to, you're not going to lose too much money on an event. Jim and Jen, you both just took your event out of its local venue with all of your local vendors. You, you ran Madison Ruby in Chicago. How complicated was that from an organization perspective? It was terrifying. <laughs> Um, I mean, just like Leah said, like when you can hit repeat on something, it makes things so much easier. So I had five years experience working with venue A and catering A. And when I told them like, I need coffee and a lot of coffee, they understood what I meant by a lot of coffee and they would be completely prepared. Um, with this planning, um, in Chicago and I'm working with our, uh, event coordinator, Sean, and I'm telling him, oh yeah, you know, we need to find somebody to take care of coffee. And, and I'm like, and we need a lot of coffee. And he's like, oh, he's thinking like, you know, five or six of those 
Coffee Joe containers that you get at Starbucks. And I'm like, wait a minute, here's the invoice of how much coffee we spent when we had 200 people for two days at the Overture Center. And we had 40 gallons of coffee. And he's like, oh, yeah, we need a lot of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) So explaining that, um, the fact that I could go back and pull up the old invoice and actually look and see how much we had and explaining that to him, it really like, you know, made him realize what I meant by a lot of coffee. It was also an interesting experience, too, because this was the first time we were in a venue that didn't require us to use their preferred caterer. So we were able to do a lot more experimenting and we were able to, you know, bring in other elements that we wouldn't have normally been able to bring in. So for instance, we had, you know, donuts from Donut Vault. You know, when Jim and I are in Chicago, that's one thing we always do is make sure we get a donut at least once from Donut Vault. And we wanted to share that experience with our attendees. And I mean, a lot of our attendees were from Chicago. Some of them were still outside. So that was one of the elements that we incorporate with Madison Ruby was like, we try and incorporate the city into the event as well. So that was our way of doing it with um, having the event in Chicago. Jim, I think you might have had a different uh, point of view on bringing it to Chicago. Yeah, as Jen said, we've had previous attendees from Chicago and we we know that community pretty well. To me, it was, it was the venue was the big question mark. Uh, we had a venue uh, that was selected and then uh, approximately six weeks before showtime, we lost that venue. And so we reached out to folks in the Chicago community and they actually folks that run conferences in Chicago and they actually delivered us a list of here's 140 venues and all the the seats available and all the features that were important to them. And so we wound up finding the the Newberry library, which was a a fantastic venue for us at the same time. It was so different from Madison Ruby's past. You know, we didn't know how well it was going to go over. And so there were a lot of unknowns and a lot of things that we, we weren't hitting repeat on. We actually, signed a contract for Newberry without Jen or I having visited. We had sent Sean who works with us down there and he's like two thumbs up. After we did that, we realized Sean's actually never experienced Madison Ruby, but it wound up turning out well. At the end of the day, the important thing are you're in this situation. Think about how your attendees are going to have that experience in that space and just turn the dial up as much as you can and and take as much into account as you can. I guess for lack of a better word, sort of spine of a conference is the program. I mean, it's not the whole thing, obviously, but it's the sort of, it's the thing you put on the website. It's the schedule. It's at least on paper, the the function of the, of the conference. How do you approach putting your program together from your, you know, what do you, how do you approach your CFP? How do you approach your selection process? What's important for you in putting that together? I want to say in addition to the program, after you've done a conference for a little while, you start to build a community around that event as well. So program is definitely the spine, but we had talked about Madison Ruby is it's not so much a place, you know, we have Madison in the name. It's not so much about the place any longer. It's about, it's about this audience. Yeah. Well, I think in the, in the specific case of Madison Ruby, it was definitely the case. There were definitely people who came, you know, from around the country because of they felt part of the Madison Ruby community and felt that it was important to them. As far as uh, programming, we tried paper call for the first time this year and it worked out pretty well. We did blind submissions. We were explicit and told people, uh, asked our submitters not to include identifying information. And you know, there, there are some things either a person's given a talk before, they're just tightly associated with that topic that it's hard to completely pull them away. But you know, we have a 
history of bringing in new speakers and being open to that. We have a history of bringing in topics that you might not see at technical conferences. And so there's sort of a, a whisper network that gets people to submit talks that they wouldn't otherwise uh, submit. But we do a completely blind submission process and we typically uh, will grab a collection of people, different people every year, and we want them to be representative of the audience that we would like to see in the seats. And we have those people review them, upvote talks that they would like to see, and I do a final curation at the end trying to pull out duplicates and, and things like that. Marty, what do you like to see when you're putting together the Ruby Central conferences? Yeah, I, um, I guess there's a, a few things to mention here. I mean, we had an established program, or at least a shape of a program that we usually stick to. We establish a program committee to help form what the the new conference is going to look like. If it's are we going to make changes, are we going to stick to the same formula? That committee is made up. It's a rotating group, and it's made up of people that are active in the community and feel are going to be good voices, good leaders of the program. And we try to make sure it's also a pretty good representation of of uh, all the folks out there, both experience level and from a diversity standpoint, uh, so that we can make sure voices are being heard at the conference. Uh, in terms of uh, sort of some of the specifics, we do primarily a call for proposals to bring in most of the program, uh, but there are some invited content. Certainly key, the keynote speakers are selected by the committee, uh, or at least I should say there. We, we, we identify who we'd like to invite and go through the process, see if they're available, if they're interested and, and all that. Typically we have uh, four to five keynote speakers at both conferences. And so that uh, some of them are kind of standard ones like Matt's is going to always open RubyConf and David usually opens uh, RailsConf. So some of that's kind of set and we rarely touch that um, formula, but um, we always talk about it. And um, I like to let the community do its work. Certainly as chair for RubyConf, we're about to put together the committee uh, and start in the program in the next month. And uh, it'll be exciting to see kind of where we go with that. But um, our process is fairly um, set in how we work. Uh, we have our own uh, CFP app that uh, Ruby Central uh, built and put out there. It's open source. It's on GitHub. And um, uh, we have a new version of it that, that very soon will be merged in and available to everyone to use. Uh, but we use that primarily because our flow is fairly complicated with, you know, a good eight to 10 people involved in the selection process. And it just there's a lot of steps that go into uh, finalizing the program. Contrary to some of the stuff I said earlier, where the barrier to entry is higher, I feel like on the program side of things, the barrier to entry is actually lower because there's so much canonical wisdom now about how to do it and about the mistakes to avoid. And there are also so many tools like the CFP app that Ruby Central built, which has been out for, I don't know, four or five, some years, some years like that now, like more paid tools. I think paper call is a paid tool, but in 2007, it was kind of like, okay, let's build a brain trust of two or three people who are going to work on this. And then they're going to come back to us with a list. And then we're going to go to those people and we're going to hope that they say yes. Um, and maybe we'll have, a, if we're really responsible, we'll have a list of backup people. And then at the end, ta-da, you have an agenda. Uh, and a lot of those agendas were even decent because hopefully you select well-qualified people to make those selections. But as we all know, that kind of a process doesn't really leave room for, number one, new people to be discovered who maybe 
aren't well-known or well-networked yet. Uh, Number two, it leaves a lot of room open for accidental biases to sneak in. Um, And number three, it sort of doesn't let those spontaneous creative thinking things happen, like the kind of things where your CFP is open now and a talk rolls in and you're kind of like, I never would have thought of that, but that's going to be amazing. Let me accept that talk. Uh, So on that front, I think things have gotten a lot easier and a lot more accessible. And a lot of the people, like all the people on this call who have done it, have also written blog posts and books and posts and whatnot detailing their process. So you can sort of step into your first event on this front and be 90% of the way there in terms of all the things that took us five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years to really perfect. And hopefully you can still even continue to perfect it. Uh, and there's still that matter of like taste that will influence the final things. Like almost all conferences will do their keynotes as invite, even if the entirety of the rest of the program is uh, submitted. And so obviously you have to make good popular and surprising and innovative decisions on that front. But it's just a much easier thing to do really, really well. Yeah, it seems to me like the difference between conferences in that respect now is as much about the kind of outreach that they do to get people to submit to the CFP. Uh, since I feel like most conferences or a lot of conferences do some form of a blind or mostly blind process. So then the distinguishing factor is how how well you get the word out as to what you're looking for and and to what audiences you promote yourself to. Yeah. And the fact that you're saying that is massive because it took a long time for people to agree and acknowledge that that was correct, especially when you're thinking about how to get a more diverse program. Like people think that you magically open it up and in some communities you just have all of the people and they all just in a representative single file line sign up to give their talks and you choose one from each pile and wow, we all live happily ever after. Uh, But it's really, really not like that. And especially if you're committed to having underrepresented folks represented in your program, you have to do a lot of outreach and you have to do that outreach and that investment way earlier than opening your CFP. Your CFP is going to be open for, I don't know, four to six weeks. But if you really want to tackle this, you want people thinking about it a year in advance or two years in advance. And and that's the amazing part of what you can accomplish when you're doing an event over and over and over. Like I start EmberConf literally the day after the previous one ends. We announce the dates of our next year's conference at our previous year's conference. In Ember in particular, one of the efforts that we have is the Ember Women Helping Women program. And that's in its fourth or fifth year where we previously had women represented on the agenda, but it it sort of wasn't enough. And I didn't feel uh, like we were being true to our community and like we were really doing a good enough job of building not just a diverse agenda every year, but a diverse leadership team in our whole community that would make that continue on in perpetuity. And so the Ember Women Helping Women program hosts like events and podcasts and hangouts and whatnot. And we have an email chain list all year long. And all year long, it's like, hey, our CFP is going to open in six months, in five months, in four months. And all year long, it's people saying things like, I gave my first conference talk. Let me tell you about it. Or does anybody want to bounce ideas off of me? Or what can I do to do this? Or I'm so nervous about getting on stage what advice can the rest of you give me? And like now five years in, we have a really, really strong community of women helping each other take that step 
and getting into doing conference talks at all and expanding out to other conferences as well. Like, oh, you want to talk at EmberConf? Why don't you start with this meetup? Why don't you start here? Why don't you start there? And it becomes pervasive for all the reasons that we all know. If you show up at a place and you see someone that looks like you and you see them being successful and you see them being respected, your brain sort of knows, I can do that too. And then when that CFP opens, you think to yourself, why not? I can do that too. Uh, the stakes are also low. Like that needs to be part of the messaging. Like it's okay. If it doesn't get in, that's fine. And that's part of why I like the iterative process that the Ruby Central app has, because you can give people feedback along the way. And so a big part of the messaging for us is, hey, submit your conference talk, even if it doesn't get in. We're going to help you make this better. And maybe you can take all that work that we iterated on together and submit it to another conference. And it just pays dividends forward. Every little bit that you do influences your conference and the next one and five years down the line. This is probably a good place to mention that I have uh, spoken at and I've also been on the program committee for uh, the Ruby Central conferences. And I also sort of more or less openly help people with CFP with proposals if they ask me over Twitter or through uh, my website. So if people are interested, I also have a pretty good success rate in helping people. So The way that you said openly made it sound like <laughs> It should be a secret, but I am confessing. I will help you, yeah. which is not the case. Like everybody should help everybody, and that's how. No, I. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why I do it. You know, I I, find, I feel like um like as a speaker, it took me a, a many years to figure out how to craft a proposal that I was comfortable. I was comfortable with speaking in public long, long before I was comfortable writing a proposal for yeah. my speaking, and I feel like there's some tricks there that a person can get better at that is somewhat orthogonal from the actual act of speaking. There are two totally different skill sets. And that's part of why I've been really excited to see. I've never made it. So I, I don't know if the event is wonderful. I hope it is. But like things like Write Speed Code, which are just like, let's get together and work on the art of crafting a conference proposal. Uh, because that's a skill to master. And it's not just that, like, when you see the same people over and over at conferences, it's not even always that they're the best speakers. In a lot of cases, it's that they have cracked the nut on how to write a proposal that will get accepted. Um, and there are a lot of things that people don't think of. Like, we see a lot of conference proposals that are trying really hard to be like witty or funny or to wrap some joke into the title and the abstract, where because the proposer has put so much effort into that, I can't figure out what they're actually going to talk about. Like the content is not in there, right? And that's just a trick. Like from the surface, you see clever ones and you think, oh, if I write something clever, I'll get in. But once you have a little more experience, you recognize that like maybe I can sneak a joke or two in. But like the main thing that I need to do here is actually communicate what I'm going to be saying on the stage, what people are going to be learning, things like that. And it's like learning an essay, how to write an essay in high school all over again, right? You have to learn the formula and then you can do it. Yeah. The, the thing that I used to do for years actually was leave out the actual meat of the talk from the abstract on the theory that I didn't want to give away the surprise of attending the talk. Yes. What I would wind up with <laughs> were abstracts that basically said nothing and, and therefore nobody ever picked. Surprise, by the way, is like overrated. People don't really need to be surprised. So just tell them the good thing they're going to learn and then they'll show up to learn it. Yeah. That took me many years to figure out. So- one thing that people who attend conferences will say is that the real action takes place in the hallway. What kinds of things do you do when you're organizing a conference to encourage and enable people to interact during the conference? Like, What can you do to make that better or from a conference organizer's perspective? I think one of the, the best things that you can do is, is give them time. So we've developed a cadence, which is 
for all practical purposes, two half-hour talks followed by a half-hour break. And we occasionally get feedback that that's too much time, typically uh, from folks that are are wanting to be less extroverted and, and have content pushed to them. But the other thing that we do is we we give a, a good chunk of time for lunch and we encourage people to, in Madison and Chicago both, we push people out of the venue to go explore the city around them. Ideally, you're going to have some local folks and you're going to have some folks from out of town that's going to give them this this common chore to do together. You know, how am I going to get food? We tend to provide options and what have you, but giving them that that exercise to do together has been wildly successful. Yeah, I would say that, you know, kind of following on Jim's comment is that, you know, you have to give them space and that's both in terms of schedule and timing and an opportunity when they can actually do that, but also physical spaces that are conducive to, you know, hanging out and chatting. And we think about that when we're, you know, choosing a venue for, for one of our conferences and how we lay out the conference, you know, where are you walking? Where can people gather? You know, will there be a bottleneck there? You know, will it be comfortable? You know, we, we have a decorator that brings in furniture and we'll say, okay, we want these kinds of couches here because that'll be a great for hanging out here or let's have these tables or a quiet room set up over here so people can do that sort of thing. Um, They have that option. And the other thing I would say about this that we've noticed with our conferences, because our conferences are multi-track, there are many tracks, you can't see all the content. It's not possible. And it's very different from when I ran a single track conference where, you know, it's a joint shared experience is wonderful with something like a RailsConf or RubyConf. There's just so much going on that it actually gives people permission to skip stuff because we record everything. So you can watch the videos later on. And so if you have a really fantastic conversation after a talk, you might skip the next talk and stay in the hallway and just chat for 30 minutes with this person that you just met at this last session. And so I think it's, it is very important that as you're laying out your program and as you're laying out your venue space, you think about how is that going to happen? Are you going to encourage it? You know, what sort of events outside of the actual program are going to be part of the conference that may be conducive to that as well? Back in, uh, oh, I want to say 2012, maybe-ish, I went to this conference in uh, in Colorado where they gave out a card game for people <laughs> to play. Yeah, that, you know, I didn't factor in when I was building that game. I didn't factor in the fact that people just trade away their cards. They just give away their cards. And that ruined the... The challenge of it, but that was okay because it, it made for a very interesting experience to uh, how do people tell stories and use those cards for fun. Yeah. I mean, one thing that, that you guys have done in Madison is not so much this year, but it's sometimes in the past is do um, like group improv or group mixer activities up front. Like how, how do you feel about that? Do you think that that works? Is it worth considering in other venues? Yes. Yeah. We've, in years past, we brought in Jesse Stern. She's from the Improv Effect, and uh, she's always been fantastic about finding the right collection of exercises to get everybody sort of engaged and pumped up at the start of the conference. We weren't able to bring her to Chicago. We were having so much new going on and having questions about budget and whatnot and how much things were going to cost. We, we weren't able to do it, but would highly recommend doing something like that. And you know, in years past, she had done paper playing contests. She's done uh, rock, paper, scissors, where you basically you play against the person next to you. And then the winner of that goes and plays the winner of the person next to you. And, you know, it just, it gets everybody up. It gets the energy in the room up and uh, people wind up meeting that wouldn't otherwise meet. And it's been fantastic and would highly, highly recommend it. We do things like that as part of our mentorship program at EmberConf. And they're always 
wildly successful. But one of the challenges is that getting to know people is best done in a more intimate environment. I'm referring to not the room, but the volume of people in it. (laughs) So we have like our mentorship program is typically limited to like 50 or so people. And we have a lot of success with various activities. Our more popular thing that we've done has been sort of a speed friending kind of event, uh, effectively the way speed dating works, but you're meeting other community members where one side of the table is all more senior members of the community and one side of the table is more junior members of the community. So it really helps like a new person who's showing up come to conference morning already knowing like 20, 30 senior people, 20, 30 junior people and feeling like the room is already friendly to them. But the challenge for us has been that goes so well every year that we have too many people who want to do it. And in theory, I could expand it. But if I expand it, that makes it less good because you don't want to be in a room to meet two, 300 people. And so it's kind of like every year I'm struggling with, should I have like three tracks of this going on in rooms adjacent? And obviously the logistical complexity increases, but it is a really nice thing to be able to do to give people an opportunity to comfortably meet each other, get to know people, feel like they belong before they get to the actual main conference itself so that then they can take full advantage of that experience when they do get there. One other thing that I've noticed in the past is when we do workshops beforehand, specifically when we do a rails bridge before the conference, that gives people who are new to programming this large group of people that they're introduced to. And again, they have this uh, this common goal that they're working towards. That's been really helpful and led into much more valuable uh, experiences at the conference proper. It's kind of like a your cohort in a school program or whatnot. Um, And that's like a meaningful connection for people. A challenge that I've been struggling with what the solution to is on that front is when you pair something like a, an X bridge, because the rails bridge has expanded into other communities already. When you pair something like that with a high skilled professional conference, you end up with a weird juxtaposition of like, if I need the bridge program, that means that I don't really know enough to get value out of a lot of the conference program. And so people aren't sure whether or not to do it. So we'll end up sometimes with people who come to the bridge program, but don't buy a ticket to the actual conference or people who come to the bridge program and have a good time, but then feel a little bit lost in the conference itself. And I'm not sure that there is a real answer there because in fact, it is pairing a super, super beginning of my career thing with a potentially super, super more in later in my career thing. And, and it's hard. Most of the content of the conference is not expecting people who learned how to work with the technology the day before. And I'm not sure what the answer is. We, it doesn't lead to like horror stories or anything. It just feels like it's not fully optimized yet. And I'd love to, I don't know if any of you have any good ideas for like what's in the middle there to make it so you feel like you belong in both of those places and have a really good time. I think the only thing I would say there, and I don't think this is a direct answer is that our, our guides and scholars program is probably the closest thing I've seen to kind of covering that gap. And just to briefly explain guides and scholars, the idea is that uh, people apply to be a scholar, they get a free 
admission to the conference, they get support while they're here. And they're usually very, very new to the industry, to conferences in general, and probably to their programming language. I don't think any of them quite are at the, I haven't used this technology level. So that's, that's a little different, but they are brand new. And uh, the guides are experienced conference goers and basically mentors in this space. And they allow these people that are new to have a really good experience. And some of them have, uh, when we've collected feedback after the event is that they, they couldn't quite grasp all the conference, but they got enough of it and they felt welcome and they felt encouraged. So even though they didn't get most of the content, they were happy to follow up. Yeah. Speaking of somebody who's mentored in that program a few times, one of the things that the mentor can help do there is, is steer the scholar towards talks that are going to be more likely to be meaningful. Because I feel like the Ruby, the Ruby Central conferences have a range of programming. And to occasionally sometimes say, like, go to this one, you're not going to understand all of it. But there's going to be something there for you to think about, even if you don't understand. Definitely, it. definitely. Also, for what it's worth, we, we, we went on to hire not somebody who was not my scholar at uh, RailsConf last year, but was also in the program when I was uh, mentoring. So it works out in that way sometimes too. It does. We've seen a lot of involvement of uh, scholars getting really involved in the community and giving back. So it, I'm very, very happy with the success of that program. It's good to start people off on the right foot rather than halfway through their journey into your community, planting the idea that they should be giving back and that they can make a meaningful contribution. And if somebody's first interaction is something where like they've been paired up with a mentor and they, someone has focused specifically on making sure that they have a good time and feel welcome. That's again, that's just going to roll through the community. And after X number of years of that being the case, hopefully you end up in a place where everybody at every level of the community is behaving like that because they've started out correctly and then set the right example for the people coming in behind them. Cool. We are sort of coming up on time. Is there one or two other little things that you've learned, something that was much more successful than you expected, some, like the one weird trick clickbait thing that, that you would say about running a, co a conference? So two things. Uh, I think Marty already alluded to this. Don't do it alone. A, there's no reason to do it alone. And B, if you at all possibly can, find somebody who has done it before and bring them onto the team, bring them on as an advisor. You don't have to listen to every decision that they, you don't, you don't need to uh, let them make all the decisions. But just soak in some of that knowledge and and listen to them and and hear where things have gone wrong for them before, where things have gone really, really right. There's no substitute for that experience. Yeah, I, I would follow up with that. That definitely ask for help. I probably am guilty of going alone too often in my past. That uh, was, I mean, if I just asked for help, it would have been easier on me, and that would have been nice to have gone that direction. Um, so I, I think that is uh, one thing to mention. The other thing is that you know. Conferences vary quite a bit. And, you know, if you're thinking about getting into this, you know, think about the experience you want. You know, why are you doing this? What are you trying to accomplish with your conference and with your program? And, you know, pay attention to what people are doing out there at other conferences and what you like and just, you know, be very intentional about that piece. And I think that's that's the one thing I would say is is, is make sure you're you're kind of following that. Yeah, I would say don't think about running a conference unless you think that it is a hard thing to do because the bad events tend to be the ones where people underestimate the complexity and underestimate the logistical overhead and just sort of think I can throw a bunch of people together in a room and they will have a good time. 
maybe they will, but you really want to do better than that. And you really have a responsibility, especially if you're going to charge people money to attend an event. Uh, you have a responsibility to give them a good time, make sure they get value for their money, make sure that nothing goes wrong. And all of that is totally doable if you do the work. Um, and if you don't recognize the complexity, then you're not going to do the work. So just know going into it that it should feel a little bit intimidating and there are a lot of moving parts. And if you pay them adequate attention, you can do a good job and you can have a really great time. And if the idea of that, if the idea of lots of spreadsheets and details and vendor relationships, if that kind of stuff doesn't appeal to you, you might not be the right person to run the conference. And maybe that means you should have a partner who can focus on that because you're really passionate about program or some other configuration of humans. But all of that stuff is part of the grand equation that will make it be successful. So don't undertake it unless you are excited about all of that or have additional people who are excited about the various little parts that will all come together to make your event successful. Um, my bit of advice would be that you don't need to sell out a two-person venue right away for your first event. You can do a, a really great conference with just a venue and uh, a smaller venue with uh, 50 people. Because that once you sell out an event at 50 people, you have breaking rights for the next year and say, we sold out. And it's hard to get those breaking rights if you already aim for the moon and you're already going for 200 person venue. And my other bit of advice would be too, is like when you send out your uh, feedback survey, if you get a few people that are really harping harshly about a particular element about the conference that they didn't like, invite them to be on the committee to make it better the next year. And I've done that three times and all three times, the individuals are like, sure, please, I would love to help with that element for the next year. And then they did help. And they came back to me and said, wow, that is hard. <laughs> so it actually gets them to understand and appreciate a little bit more. But like, yes, I'm getting your feedback. I hear you. Please help us. And then they also then appreciate how much work it does go into it. Great. Thank you all for being here. Uh, where can people reach you if they want to continue to talk to you about conference organizing or anything else? I'm available on Twitter, uh, Jay Rimzik Jr. My DMs are open. Yeah, Marty Hot. Uh, Twitter's probably the best place. Uh, so M-G-Hot, H-A-U-G-H-T. And my DMs are open as well. I prefer email, so jen at adorable.io. Folks can feel free to reach out to me. My email address is leah at tilde.io. Uh, I'm wifelet on Twitter. I hesitate to mention this because I don't like the concept of shameless self-promotion, but it's not really about that. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Event Driven, haha joke, which is about running successful and memorable technical conferences. It's due for an update, but basically uh, I spent a lot of time on calls with people who were like, I want to do this. Can I ask you a bunch of questions? Can I pick your brain? Which I still do. But at that point, the volume of those calls was getting a little bit uh, difficult. And I found myself saying the same things over and over and over again. So I sat down in the airport lounge one, one day on the way back from, I think, the last Kokoruko. Uh, and I just sort of did a brain dump of all of the things. 
Um, and I was anticipating writing a blog post, but it ended up being like a 200 page book or whatnot. So it's all of the things that I wish I had known before my first conference and that I learned by basically messing up a time or two or watching other people messing up a time or two. So if it would be helpful, if you're somebody who learns well from the medium of reading, uh, it's a PDF, it's called event driven. You can get it on Celine pub. Thank you. It's been a long time since I even thought about it. So, uh, I was going to I was going to mention it if you didn't. It really does feel you exactly said exactly how you said it feels like you just poured out all the stuff that you had learned painstakingly over the years into one PDF. Yeah, so I should update it because I've learned more, which is good. Uh, but it'll get you a large portion of the way there, and if nothing else, uh, give you a lot to think about because a lot of the things are just like oh, when I signed my contract, I didn't realize I had to ask XYZ. I didn't realize about this liability. I didn't know that if I didn't do this at this time, blah, blah, blah. And things that are hard to sort of go back and fix up later down the line in your planning. So if that's useful to you, uh, find it on the internet, read it. And after that, feel free to give me a call. It actually also includes um, a spreadsheet that I use that I think RailsConf is probably still using and I was using for a bunch of my conferences that was just a helpful Google Doc spreadsheet with 10 different tabs to sort of set you off on the right organizational track for keeping all of your details in order. I'm in the middle right now of creating an Airtable alternative to that, which is a little bit smarter of a spreadsheet. And I'm hoping that after I use it one more time on RustConf coming up, that I will add it to the freebies that come with the book so that it can help people plan if they want to use a more advanced tool. Hopefully that will help some folks get over the initial humps and avoid some of the mistakes that a lot of us made ourselves. Great. Um, thank you all for being here and, uh, and I appreciate it and see all of you around, uh, around the community. Thank you. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done